Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Well, on tonight's program, Julia Lee of Berman Invest will look at the regional banks and also the, the big energy company, Woodside, with experts tipping a higher oil price is on the way. And then Adam Dawes of Shore and Partners will give us his best stock to hold for a year to make money on. And then Paul Ricard looks at Transurban with this buyback. Should you participate? And is this a company... Is it a dead set winner going forward? And then hedge fund manager Marcel von Pfeiffer of Arminius Capital tells us how scared we should be about an Evergrande financial fallout, and he gives us his best local stock to buy and hold. That's the show. Let's start off with Julia Lee of Berman Invest. Now, before I get you to look at some of the stocks that viewers have been asking me to look into, is there anything you've liked recently and you've added to your fund? Uh, I guess having a, a look at the market at the moment, and we have seen a little bit of weakness in September. We came into September expecting a bit of weakness and a, about a 30% cash level. We've spent most of that, so expecting to see a good October and into year end. I guess looking at a lot of the stocks I like, I've mentioned them on your show, so um I think we mentioned New Farm a couple of weeks ago. That's yeah. rallied about 10% from when we were talking about it. Yep. Um, I guess having a, a look across uh, some of the stocks, we've spoken about Qantas um, many times, and that's doing extremely well on the market. Mm. Um, I, I have added, I guess, some of the underperformers on the market. I feel like they're just oversold at the moment. So um, IOOF and Magellan fit into that group in the financial sector. But in the financial space, you know, we have Bank of Queensland as well as Virgin Money that have been doing well on the market. Um, and yeah, I guess um, it's been it's been a pretty good month. We're in the black, even though the market's in the red uh, this month. Yeah, when, you, when you said Virgin Money, is that, is that the VUK um, ticker code? Yes, so VUK over in the UK, I mean, they're talking about inflation and possibly raising interest rates. And we know that rising interest rates are uh, is a good environment for the banks because it gives them an opportunity to reprice uh, their mortgage books. So uh, VUK, I guess, just exposure to a bank in a different country. So a bit of diversification through the ASX. It does trade on the ASX. It's the old Clydesdale, which was a spun off NAB, um, mm. but now has rebranded as Virgin Money. Yeah, courageously, Maureen bought that not long after the coronavirus crash. She's made a lot of money, but oh, very it, good. This is a big gamble, but she got it right. <laughs> All right. So, and also, we have noticed that the market is really uh, getting excited about news of the international borders opening up with the likes of Webjet and Flight Center and Qantas, as you already pointed out. They're all doing well. And you start wondering. How, how high can these go when we actually do start traveling big time, say in the middle of next year? I think this is one of the funny things about the market, Pete, is that it prices in the future. So by the time we're traveling, it would have already priced that in. So yeah. really you have to get in on these names um, before it's priced in. So looking at um, some of those travel names doing extremely well on the market, I suspect there would have been some short covering on the market as well, given that we've seen names like Flight Center and Webjet up about 7% and also Qantas up around about 4% on the market today. So look, I think initially we will see... Um, 
I guess, a lot of us traveling. Um, so I think initially the capacity for travel will be higher than COVID-19, and then we'll probably see a bit of an easing back. Um, but the time to get in on the travel stocks is before we start traveling, because once we start traveling, it's all priced in. Okay, let's get to a company like ProMedicus, which you've mentioned before on our program. Um, do you still like it? Yes, um, I really like this company. In fact, um, I think it was September 2018 at the ASX small mid-cap conference. This was my number one pick. Um, but back then, Pete, the price was $10. And now it's closer to $60. So although I really like this company, I don't like the price. So I probably wouldn't be buying it at these levels. For anyone who hasn't heard of um, ProMedicus, I guess it's in that area of imaging. So in the old days, you know, we used to get our x-rays and take the physical x-rays to the doctor. Well, whereas ProMedicus has technology that um, allows high resolution. So instead of having to take that physical x-ray, it can be sent over to the doctor instead. It makes a lot of sense, a huge growth area. But look, this is now like a $6 billion company with, uh, I guess, $70 million worth of revenue. Um, so so I think the price is just too expensive for me to price buy. Price to imperfection. Sorry? It's price to imperfection rather than perfection. <laughs> it's price for perfection and too much growth. Um, I don't think you'll be able to grow at the levels that are, are priced in. I'd like to see, I guess, a bit of sideways movement and consolidation for a while here. Okay. Now, what about split it? Yeah, look, the time to get into things is when um, I guess there's a new area and you're increasing market share. But unfortunately, in the area of buy now, pay later, um, there's more and more competition coming in. Mm. And when there's more and more competition coming in, it means that it's harder to get market share and it becomes more expensive. So you have to spend a lot more on marketing to be able to try and find growth. So look, I'd be avoiding a lot of the buy now, pay later space, given that there's still increasing competition and intensifying competition as well in fact Pete today I was just uh, reading about cover more which is buy now pay later in the insurance space so not 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 only is it in the retail shopping space but it is um, spreading to other large items yeah. as well okay now you mentioned BOQ and you said you got that in your fund but what about Bendigo Adelaide Bank have you run your eye over that yeah, I mean, I like both of the regionals because they have been growing above system, which means that they've been, um, I guess, beating the big four banks when it comes to things like mortgage lending and mortgage growth. But I prefer Bank of Queensland. I mean, if you have a look at any of the numbers, it looks like there's been a lot of migration from New South Wales and Victoria into Queensland. And given that Queensland hasn't had the mobility restrictions that we have in New South Wales and Victoria, the property market looks stronger in terms of volumes as well. So look, I like Bank of Queensland for the flexibility that they have in terms of pricing, the strength of the Queensland economy and how they're getting through COVID-19. Whereas with Bendigo and Adelaide, I do feel like that the margins might come under a little bit of pressure and that might drive some of the share price. So still like Bendigo um, and Adelaide, but much prefer Bank of Queensland here. Okay, finally Woodside. Uh, and we now got the BHP deal with uh, Woodside. Um, we know oil prices are allegedly going to be on the way up with a, a booming global economy next year. But what's your view on Woodside? 
Yes, we have Woodside in the patrol, uh, the portfolio. We started accumulating just below that $20 mark, um, waiting for a turnaround in the oil price. And finally, it's here. Um, the good news, I guess, for oil and energy companies, and not just Woodside, but Oil Search, Santos, Beach Petroleum, is that energy prices are just booming at the moment. Part of that has to do with the natural gas price. Over in China, they're already seeing blackouts. Um, and of course, we've seen the Chinese government asking some of their industrial firms to cut back on usage, but now also households as well are being told to try and use natural light instead of turning on the lights. And this is all before peak season when winter hits. And then over in the UK as well, it looks like they've got an energy crisis there. Um, one of the pipelines from France hasn't been working and there's also been uh, nuclear power that's been out as well, which has impacted. So um, energy prices are absolutely going through the roof. And then add in the effect of hurricane Ida that we're still dealing with that has meant shortages in terms of the energy supply and, of course, reopening um, uh, economies. And I think that energy price is really going to stay strong until at least the end of the year and going into the new year as well. So, look, I would be accumulating here. I know that Woodside Petroleum has um, increased quite a bit over the last few weeks, but I think that's just going to continue on. So looking for a target price around $27 to $30 here for uh, Woodside Petroleum and oil and gas in general, looking quite strong, not only from a cyclical, but also a structural point of view. Yeah. And also, Julie, I've just been thinking, I just saw our household bill. We've been working from home uh, right across winter as a consequence. Our, our heating bill is higher, our lighting, all that sort of stuff. And, and a lot of the offices would probably have kept up their, their usual demand. So energy demand is actually higher right across the board because of coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, we're luckier over here in Australia that we have so many producers, um, but over in the UK, it's a real crisis. But I think the funny thing about um, commodities, Pete, is that, you know, commodities are commodities wherever they are in the world. So as long as you can ship it somewhere, pricing does seem to be uh, on a global basis rather than a local basis. So definitely our oil and gas companies um, are benefiting. And as you mentioned, the fact that we're working from home, there's a number of companies that are benefiting, whether it's energy companies, whether it's telecom companies, broadband internet companies, office companies, they're all um, benefiting from us working from home. Julia Lee, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Well, joining me now is Adam Dawes of Shore and Partners. Adam, thanks for coming on the program. Yes, great to, see, great to be here. Great to see you. Yes, same here, mate. Now, look, I, I've asked you to just go looking through all the stocks out there that you guys are looking at all the time and analysing and talking to your clients about. What is the one stock you really think's got the, the propensity to do really well over the next year? It'd be like the Adam Dawes destroyer stock. Yeah, so the best stock that we've got on, in our wheelhouse at the moment is Global Data Centres. GDC is the stock code. Uh, basically, it's a global data centre, but where does all the data go, Peter? That's what we want to know. Where does it all go? And it has to get stored somewhere. It doesn't stay in the cloud where everybody thinks it gets stored. It gets stored in data centres, and that's exactly what GDC does. They've got some uh, data centres in, in Guam, in South America. They're across the world. They've just raised $25 million. There's no need for them to raise any more money. There's an SPP. Once that SPP finishes, I think this stock will really, really go. And I think it's uh, a warehouse of the future and future-proofing your portfolio. 
Oh, gee, that sounds like a real tagline. SPP, some people wouldn't know what you mean by SPP. Uh, so it's a share purchase plan where existing share, shareholders get the ability to give the company some money at a discounted price at $1.93 at the moment. Okay, so that's the one. GDC, so it's like a, a version of Next DC with a yeah. more international focus, I guess you're saying. Correct. Correct, yeah. Next DC is going to struggle to get a lot of uh, in, in, in these metro areas because the rent's so expensive and property values are so expensive. They're going to have to pay up to get these warehouses where these guys have gone, let's go outside of Australia and we can get some warehouse space a lot cheaper. Yeah, real estate in Guam, probably a little bit cheaper than Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> certainly is. Okay, let's go to, I've actually got a number of stocks and these have been put to us by viewers who asked us to have a, a crack at it. Now, this is one that comes up a fair bit and it's fairly popular. It's a Prometicus PME. Come off the yeah. boil recently, but it's had a pretty, pretty big rise over the year, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And Goldman, the reason why it did come off the boil, Goldman Sachs uh, actually downgraded the stock. And so that's hence why it's just come off the boil a little bit. But Prometicus remains well ahead of its competition. And the gap, it seems to be, appears to be a widening on this one. I think the stock trades definitely at a high multiple because it is a growth company. But there's clearly a case for buying the story and getting some more blue sky in this share price at the moment. Their addressable market's definitely expanding beyond the radiology and AI revenues. And they've won up to six new contracts this year alone. So contract moving forward, I think there's a little bit of blue sky left. I think they're uniquely placed to play a major role in the adoption of AI across the radiology and the imaging space. And that's why I think most of the market likes it. Had a bit of a pullback at the moment, potentially uh, you know, a little bit of a breather, and that's always good. But PME is definitely kicking some goals in the market at the moment. Yeah, and and healthcare, we don't have a real lot of companies in that space, and you can see a lot of people jumped on the on the basis that it looks like a, a real improver. Yeah, well, also infrastructure. I was looking at it today. We don't have a lot of infrastructure stocks either. They're all getting taken over at the moment. So there's a real gap in the market for good healthcare stocks, good infrastructure stocks. Yeah, definitely. Here's one split at SPT. Um, I get the questioners all the time. I guess people are trying to look for the next. Zipper after pub. What do you think about split? Look, I think it's a good it's good technology. Uh, able to use your credit card, able to use anything, and then split it into four even payments. I think it's fantastic, and they do have a very large following in the US. So again, that's a very large untapped market. I think Afterpay has only scratched the surface by about 10% penetration. So look, it looks fantastic. What you need to look for in, in Splitted is the, is the penetration and the website searches. Um, but Afterpay and Zip definitely with QuadPay for Zip, they definitely take the lion's share of that sort of search tool techniques to, to, to move forward. Look, Splitted does trade on a higher multiple. I'm of the view that Zip is the better of the of the all of the buy now pay later businesses. Uh, Afterpay will certainly leave our shores. It'll go off to the US. That will make Zip the number one uh, buy now pay later uh, stock in the sector. So I think that's probably the better way to go is play Zip. But split it does it does trade on a higher multiple. Hence why I'm a little bit cautious about it at the moment. Yeah, and I, I guess the story around Zip going into India is an interesting one as well. There are a lot of customers in India. There are a lot of customers as well as uh, quite uh, affluent customers also that are moving into that space with their sort of their middle class moving up the levels there. And yeah, it was absolutely well received by the market. I didn't think it would have done so well, but very well received. And even today, uh, the stock is starting to stay in the green, which is fantastic. <laughs> okay, let's go to uh, 
I, I, I've followed this story up because a lot of people have been asking me, okay, if I, if I commit to the CBA buyback, you know, do I buy more CBA or do I buy other banks? And I thought, well, let's have a look at the other banks like BOQ and Adelaide, Adelaide Bendigo Bank. What are you guys thinking about those two? Look, certainly I've always been the view that I prefer to be in the big, big four. Okay, like that for me is is the place to be. One, they've got the market clout. Two, they've got the the volume. And three, they're not a they're a price maker, not a price taker. And when I say that, when Bendigo Bank goes to borrow some money in into the market or, or overseas, uh, they're they're much more of a price taker. They'll take what they can get. Whereas Commonwealth Bank goes out to the market and they can make their own price. So there is some subtle differences with between the sort of the big four and then the regionals. But look, certainly Bendigo is actually probably the one that is looking a little bit better. I'm a bit cautious on Bank of Queensland with that ME bank acquisition. There's been some issues going on in there, and I don't think they've fixed that just that right. I think Bendigo, their, their results were good. It did sort of fail to impress the market going forward. But I think that Bendigo is probably the one that is better placed if I was pushed to say which one's a buy, I'd say Benigo and Adelaide Bank would, for me, trading on a lower multiple, good dividend, and I'm pretty comfortable. But in saying all of that, I prefer the big four because I think the housing market is still going to continue to keep going. And, um, you know, yeah, I I think the big four are a better place to be. Last one, Woodside. um, You know, know a lot of my subscribers would love to see Woodside up near $30. Um, But... um, it's been a disappointing company, but they've got this BHP deal out there where basically BHP wants to, you know, shovel its oil uh, assets, energy assets into, into Woodside. It has to yeah. be supported by BHP shareholders, uh, but the market's kind of liking it. And energy prices, the outlook's good there, but what's your view on Woodside? Yeah, look, there's, I mean, Woodside has been my favourite stock of all of the energy producers. So first of all, Tick, it is the biggest, it's the best and has the best balance sheet. So for an investor, that's where I usually gravitate to, so Woodside. Secondly, the stock will always follow the oil price and the oil price at around $70, $75 where it is today actually looks pretty good and, and Woodside's somewhat caught up with that sort of price rise on the oil side. The the other side of it is is this ESG trade is going to continue to happen and Woodside has been definitely falling behind on that ESG side of things. In saying that, I think that uh, Woodside and the BHP deal potentially looks a little bit better for BHP than it does Woodside at the moment due to the fact that BHP is probably getting rid of some of those assets that they know that they can't become carbon neutral. But on the other hand, Woodside's picking up uh, A-class, world-class asset that don't come, that doesn't come around often. So, you know, there's this sort of tug of war, I think, between ESG as well as the tightening gas market in Europe. Uh, there's certainly, I think, further upside in that LNG space as well. But I don't know if Woodside can capture all of that upside at the moment. So, I think it looks okay. I think 85% of the world's needs is still done by fossil fuels. So we still need oil. And the other side to that is, is that there is constantly, there is not enough production process going forward or there's not enough new mines or enough new wells being produced at the moment mm-hmm. to supply the demand going forward in the next five to 10 years. So that actually bodes well for energy businesses now that are in production. Yeah. So. There's lots of moving parts, lots of juggling there. I think Woodside's a buy. I'm comfortable with it. You just have to have that ESG side of things that you need to be cautious of. So, yeah, I like it. 
PSG basically saying the environmental, social and governance issues means that some fund managers simply won't buy those assets where once upon a time they always did because, as you said, it was the best asset in that particular class. Correct. Yeah, and ESG, there's a there's a wall of money coming. Yeah, I, I asked my daughter what she wanted for Christmas and she said, oh, some clothes, but it must be ethically sourced, Dad, and mm-hmm. it mustn't be made in a sweatshop, right? So this is my 14-year-old daughter telling me this, mm-hmm. right? It, there, there is a wall of this stuff coming down the line that we're potentially not of, uh, used to, but it is coming. So I think we've got to, you've got to have one eye open on that ESG side, but also the reality is that fossil fuels needs to be used to power the world. Yeah. I watched a television program recently called White Lotus, where the uh, the teenage kids were continually criticising their parents, and the mother eventually responded and said, "said How come if you're trying to save the world, all these all these people in the world, but you're so horrible to us, the people who love you?" <laughs> I guess I guess our kids are showing us the way, mate. And that's a good that's thing. That's it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Adam Dawes, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Have a great day. And that was Adam Dawes of Shoring Partners. Now joining me is Paul Rickard of the Switzer Report. He also talked about Transurban. I'm often wondering whether Transurban is a good investment now or not. It seems to be taking control of all the the, um, motorways and tollways and whatever in Australia at the moment. Uh, But it's also got a placement uh, for capital raising. So let's just see if Paul thinks this remains a really good company. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Let's go fill people in on what Transurban is up to right now. Yeah, look, it's um, it's part of a consortium called uh, Sydney Transport Partners that have bought the remaining 49% of West Connex. Now, if you're not from Sydney, that's a, a big motorway project that's essentially linking the M4 with the M5. So you sort of have another sort of continuous route through the heart of city and it joins the sort of the southwest, the airport, Port Botany, up with the big sort of industrial and residential areas of the western suburbs. So it's a big, big motorway project. Uh, Transurban and its partners already owned 51%. They bought the remaining 49% for about $11 billion. Uh, Transport, sorry, Transurban owns about 50, owns 50% of the partnership and it, it's raising about $4 billion to help fund its, its components. So uh, it'll own and operate the motorway, but this is actually taking ownership away from the New South Wales government. Mm. Paul? Transurban has been historically a very good company. What would you say about its current share price? Is it at a good level or is it, would you like to see it drop before you recommended it? Yeah, Peter, that's a good question because uh, it's clearly been impacted by, by COVID. Um, and, of course, the big change about COVID, of course, is that we all, particularly in Sydney and, and Melbourne and parts of Brisbane, had lockdowns. The big sort of unknown with, with Transurban, and it owns, you know, the, it's the major toll road company in Sydney, Brisbane, and Melbourne. So essentially, it's got an almost a monopoly on the east coast of Australia, plus a little bit in, in, in North America. Is that is there going to be some permanent change about you know how we commute to work uh, going forward, and will that actually put a bit of downward pressure in terms of of traffic usage? So the thing you know about Transurban is that the tolls, the prices it charges. If you're a motorist, you know this. They yeah. increase with a more than a rate of about, which is based on inflation, but it turns out to be more than inflation each quarter. So the toll price keeps on going up. It's all about the traffic usage. And if, if traffic usage goes up or stays the same, then revenue goes up and that essentially allows it to pay a higher distribution. 
And over COVID, of course, uh, because COVID came along, you know, traffic usage declined and the distributions have declined. So that's sort of been the sort of one of the big negatives on transurban. You know, we all know that we're going to get out of lockdowns, but um, are we going to see something permanent in terms of uh, the way we all work and what that means for the usage of, of motorways? And I guess if we'd raised that two or three years ago, Peter, that wouldn't have been an issue. We didn't think that was going to happen. So that's probably negative number one. And negative number two is it's uh, currently um, on behalf of the Victorian government building the Westgate Tunnel Project uh, in Melbourne. That's a big, big project. There's a big contractual dispute going on between, you know, the Victorian government, the, the subcontractors and the developer. The developer, of course, is Transurban. Looks like they're going to have to fork out some more money over that. But that's not settled yet. So that's sort of a bit of a negative. And thirdly, you know, the price has gone up so much that, um, you know, the yields become sort of 3% is maybe 4% at best if, if it can get its traffic back to normal, which is interesting, but not as compelling as it was. So it's sort of been stuck, you know, around about this $14 level now for the best part of, of a couple of years with ups and downs with COVID around it. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here because, you know, you do actually put together portfolios for our financial planning clients. Are you going to be putting them into Transurban because it's like a, a safe harbour type play when you put together, say, 20 or 25 stocks into a portfolio. Yeah, and that's exactly the way we used to look at Transurban, Peter, as a safe harbour type play. Um, you're very reliable yield distribution, and you can sort of pencil that one in and very low volatility. So we used to have a lot of our clients in Transurban. As I said, I, I've changed my mind over the last year or two to be a little bit, you know, not quite as enamoured about Transurban as I used to be, simply because I think this risk about, you know, how we end up working post-COVID uh, is still out there and uh, you know a lot of companies saying to people their staff that you'll never have to come to the office again well so if that happens you know maybe the demand for some of the motorway usage which does tend to be directed towards getting people into the cities um, might decline I guess the thing that's making me just a little bit um, you know sit up and take notice Peter is there's been such a huge demand for infrastructure stocks in the last few months really led by our big superannuation funds that really suggests that there's almost, you know, there aren't too many assets left. And we've seen, you know, a takeover for Sydney Airport, which is the biggest stock. And, I, and contrary to the share price, I think that's going to go ahead, Peter. That, that will succeed at some stage. We've seen a takeover almost done now for Spark Infrastructure. And then we've got two parties, you know, fighting over Osnet Services, and that's three infrastructure companies gone in the space of a couple of months. Um, there aren't too many left. I mean, Transurban is left. It's the biggest. You can look at Auckland International Airport. Uh, there's another smaller toll road company that's focused in the North America you look at. Uh, and then um, that, that's about it. There aren't really too many other companies out there that allow retail investors, and for that matter, a lot of big super funds to invest in infrastructure. So um, I think... In some ways, you follow the money where the money's going, and it's going into infrastructure. And I'm inclined on that basis to stay with my exposure to transurban mm. uh, and take up my entitlements uh, that uh, is part of this capital raising. And, and Paul, one thing I've never ever you know talked to you about or and or tried to test is that you know I kind of agree with you. The working from home trend could be a negative for a company like transurban. But I then started to wonder when, I, when you're giving your answer then, well, a big chunk of the people who work in the CBD of Sydney come in by train or bus. 
Yeah. So they're not really that the drivers may well be people going, say, from Parramatta to you know Ashfield or something like that. And they would probably still use the M the M4 in that respect if, if they're gonna keep on doing that kind of thing. And so and the tradies, of course, they have to move around the place. So I wonder if trans or obviously Transurban's done that kind of work. We should actually push them to see what they think about the, the demographics of the, the users and the impact of the um, work of the home. Yeah, I mean, look, it's mainly lockdown impact at the moment. Of course, lots of things are on hold. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, we did. It, it may turn out to be a much less serious issue than I'm foreshadowing, Peter. I guess it only needs a couple of percentage, you know, movement. And, um, yeah, that, that does have an impact on the distribution. So I, I think what really, you know, big super, Australian super, you've got uh, industry fund management group, you've got Q super, you've got a lot of others. They're lining up to buy infrastructure assets, and you've got to think that, that they've probably worked through a number of these issues. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know there aren't that many that, are, that that they can readily touch. So I think that's giving a a fillip to the whole infrastructure market, and uh, that's why I've sort of gone from being pretty lukewarm. Um, not that I didn't like the company, Peter, just that I thought it was you know pretty fully priced, and it was a stock to sort of look at you know buying when it gets marked down a bit, but. I'm actually sort of coming around and thinking that, uh, you know, the market is so hot at the moment. We know that interest rates are staying low for a long time uh, and yields are probably, when they do go up, we're not probably talking about huge increases. So, you know, maybe, you know, a 4% distribution per annum from, from Transurban, given that it's going to be low volatility, given that it's going to be, uh, you know, you could say almost pretty secure, Um looks attractive to a lot of these uh, big super funds. I guess they won't have to share money with the New South Wales government anymore as well. <laughs> I guess they won't. But don't worry, uh, everyone gets the benefit, Peter. So uh, you and I know as, as uh, toll road users, uh, we'll be paying, I guess that's one of the reasons that uh, why I know you as well have liked to own Transurban in the past. It's right. a reason why I like banks as well. If you can't make them do what you want, you might as well go along for the ride and take the profit and the high share price. Yeah, look, it makes sense. It's the only way you can get even because you can't do much else, right? You can't. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. That's Paul Rickard of the Switzer Report. If you want to know more about what Paul writes, have a look at the um, website, switzerreport.com.au, and take out a free trial. Well, joining me now is the founder of Arminius Capital, Marcel von Pfeiffer. Marcel, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Peter. Good to see you again. Yeah, same here. All those years in Switzerland, what a place to be, but I'm glad you're back home in lockdown-free Queensland. Yes, I'm sure it's only a matter of days before that changes again, Peter. Who knows? Okay. Let's, now, interestingly, um, you wrote a piece about the crackdown in China. It coincides with the problem we've seen with Evergrande, the, the property developer. Um, yep. what, what do you think Beijing is up to? Well, first of all, let's clarify uh, exactly what Evergrande is. Uh, it perhaps once was a property developer um, and then, of course, moved into shadow banking. Um, and therein is really why, to answer your question quite directly, uh, why President Xi and why the Chinese are having such a major uh, issue um, with Evergrande and what we are touting to be the eventual controlled demolition um, of Evergrande by the Chinese authorities. So the problem is, Peter, uh, again, as I'm sure you and uh, all of your viewers would have seen over the past couple of days, um, the Chinese regulatory authorities 
never, never ones to be known to, uh, to be backwards in coming forwards, um, have decided to kill off um, all uh, Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin uh, trading. So this, this holistically uh, is continuing um, the regulatory crackdown on activities uh, that they see is not uh, contributing to the betterment um, of the Chinese populace going forward. Now, before all this, it looked like China was a communist country playing a, a capitalist game that essentially suited China. That's, that's what it looked like, whether, whether it was or not. Lately, it's become like a communist country that's cracking down on capitalism and basically picking and choosing what, what it wants to survive in the old form. Is that a, a fair call? 90% of what you said um, was completely on the money. Um, the only caveat I'd put there on the, uh, the remaining 10% is, uh, as we note uh, in the article that, you, that you've referenced that we wrote um, uh, last week, China has always been a communist country. And I think um, hearkening back to the era of the Clinton presidency, um, when they were admitted into the World Trade Organization as a developing nation, and I'll just sink the boot in here, that uh, despite ostensibly still being the second largest economy in the world, um, even based on purchasing power parity terms, uh, they are still classified by the World Trade Organization as a developing country, um, which affords them um, many advantages in the, uh, the global trade arena um, that other countries in, uh, who are deemed developed countries uh, don't enjoy. Um, so going, uh, going back to your question, Peter, um, the, uh, the West, when, when China was brought in to the World Trade Organization, the West thought that this would herald the reduction um, in some of the, the nastier or the more brutal um, tenets of communist ethos. Um, however, uh, as the years have gone past, as you said, what they've done very adroitly is that they have cherry-picked the components of capitalism that they actually enjoy and that that has uh, benefited uh, the Chinese economy. Um, and indeed, I, I think, again, we, we touched on this briefly in the article, but this is very, very important for, for your viewers, is the social contract that exists between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese citizens. And what they have done um, since their entry into the WTO, they have uh, managed with the assistance of the World Trade Organization and many other uh, global uh, organizations, they have managed to create an environment that has kept their GDP growth uh, at, the, at levels that are the envy of every other nation on the planet and the social contract that exists between the party and the population is that the people are prepared to give up um, certain benefits or certain freedoms that we in the West take for granted um, in return for that colossal GDP growth um, of anywhere between eight and 10% as they've enjoyed. And so what has happened is that the Chinese population has uh, clearly benefited uh, from that, and the contract has been is that they have something like 600 million people in their population who are making still today who are making less than 200 US dollars per month. So the social contract is they will give up certain degree a certain degree of their freedoms um, and rights in return for the the lower class or the the uber lower class 
uh, as the West would deem them, to be moved across into the middle class. Um, so, Peter, yes, they have, uh, the Communist Party has been able to say to the West, we're doing all these good things over here, but realistically in China, that has still come at a price. That, that is to say that the Chinese people um, still do not enjoy uh, the freedoms um, that we in the West, as I say, uh, take for granted upon birth. Okay. Let's, let's go away from the, the bigger order of issues that you're always concerned with because you're a bigger order kind of guy. Let's yep. go through, is Evergrande a potential Lehman Brothers? Could it rock the global financial system? We don't believe that it is a that it will be a source of contagion um, to the West. Um, as we've written about uh, earlier this week, the global high yield market, um, that is to say all of the global institutional investors have less than 5% uh, allocation um, into Chinese high yield. So the likelihood, and again, that is a very specific number. Um, when you look at Lehman Brothers, which is the obvious comparator here that, that uh, many commentators are, are hearkening towards, um, when you look at Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers was a bank. Um, it is, or sorry, it was. Um, Lehman Brothers was uh, what would eventually become known as a globally systemic important bank. Okay, so post-GFC, they now, um, they, they grade the credit risk um, and the solvency and the liquidity of these big guys uh, regularly. Lehman Brothers was a bank. Lehman Brothers was not some Californian property developer. Okay, so Evergrande, we believe, is a problem that is inherent to the Chinese economy, not just to the Chinese property uh, sector. It's going to have wider ranging ramifications to the Chinese market. Um, but if you're if your question about the comparison to Lehman Brothers, uh, if, if that's where we're going, no, it's not. It's actually not a fair comparison. It's not a appropriate comparator. But is there going to be um, ramifications in Australia, perhaps, to what will we believe be a slowdown in the Chinese property sector as a result of what we believe will be a or an eventual controlled demolition uh, by the Chinese authorities of Evergreen? Okay. Um, would you? Are you? Or would you invest in any company in China? No. Uh, three or four years ago, everyone wanted to be in Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba. Have those days gone? It's just, has, has Beijing become too big, big a sovereign risk for any investor? From our perspective, yes. <clears throat> um, we, uh, point blank, as a matter of strategic policy in our company, we will not um, invest in any instrument that has direct exposure to China. Um, I think, you know, you've referenced Alibaba there. You know, you should try and get Jack Ma on your show, Peter, if you can find him, if he's not locked up um, for being too rich. Um, so the, the problem is, again, um, you know, you and I, you've probably got two or three years uh, of age on me there, Peter. But, um, you know, guys like you and I, we live through the GFC. We live through the tech crash. I was uh, a young whippersnapper um, in 1987, but all of these recent, and I say recent because they, in in trend, in historical terms, they are pretty recent. All of these recent crises have something in common: is that the market goes up at a seemingly inexhaustible pace, a la Tencent and Alibaba and all the other Chinese market darlings, to the extent. 
that the regulators and in this case, MISCI, MSCI, Morgan Stanley Capital um, International, um, decided to include China or 200 Chinese stocks into its MISCI Global Index. <clears throat> we thought at the time um, that this was a terribly poor idea um, and that is uh, that has played out uh, as you see today um, in global markets. So there are other commentators who I'm sure are very well known to you uh, who refer to China as simply being uninvestable um, and the repercussions of uh, former President Trump uh, policy about reducing um, US pension funds, uh, reducing US institutional investment into China has been carried forward to the Biden administration. Um, they will be pursuing the same type of uh, restrictions upon institutional mandates going forward. Um, so again, if you're already invested in China, you're wearing the pain um, of the Evergrande fiasco. Um, would we invest and do we do we ever recommend to investors to invest directly into China? No. All right, so 2022, what's your economic outlook and what's the market outlook for Arminius Capital? So the market outlook for 2022, again, provided that the global leaders, and I think that in the Northern Hemisphere, they're probably handling this a little bit better than in the Southern Hemisphere, provided that they continue their current policies, they have decided led by the UK pretty much. Um, and I mean, Switzerland did it as well, but Switzerland only has a population of about 8.5 million people. So it doesn't really register on too many people's radars um, as far as global policy is concerned. But they have just decided that enough is enough, um, that if you want the vaccine, go and get vaccinated, and then we are going to open for business um, because the long-term effects that are yet to be felt, because they're long-term effects, um, the long-term effects that are yet to be felt um, in, the, in the population um, in the economy, um, but also the mental health of people going from lockdown to opening lockdown to lockdown, et cetera, they have just decided enough is enough and let's go forward. So with the caveat of uh, another hyper-contagious variant um, breakout, which will happen, well, sorry, which could happen because, again, people need to understand it's a virus. Viruses, this is what viruses naturally do. Um, they develop new strains, but um, the, the health authorities, uh, sorry, the drug companies, um, seem to be more on top of, uh, of what's going on. So provided that the holistic health of the population is cared for, we expect some semblance of a return to economic normality because they dovetail into each other, which is clear to me, but not to everyone. Um, then we're expecting that provided that the EPS of all the companies continue apace, that 2022 will continue to be a, hopefully the uptick of the W rebound that we've experienced um, since February 2021. Now, the outlook for almost all equity markets, and again, you know, Peter, how much I hate using acronyms, but um, hearkening back to TINA, there is no alternative. The Federal Reserve uh, last week on Thursday um, effectively said that they will commence uh, tapering. They've managed to, under Chairman Powell, communicate this to the market a little bit better than Bernanke did in 2013. Um, so you haven't seen this massive stampede for the doors um, in equities land. So I think they're going to be incredibly measured um, in how they raise rates uh, in the United States. 
Um, but again, Tina means that in Australia, you will have just purely by holding the ASX 200, um, you'll have a dividend yield somewhere between 3.4 and possibly 3.6%, which isn't as good as in the old days, but um, this is where we are today. Um, and in the US, um, Japan looks very cheap. Um, and Europe, as I said, um, has probably been on the front foot of all of the major markets we look at, which is the US, Europe, Japan, and Australia. So in a nutshell, Peter, um, we are, uh, I don't want to say cautiously optimistic. We are more than, we are, we are optimistic for 2022. Yeah. Um, and again, even if the Federal Reserve and then obviously the ECB and the BAJ and the RBA follow suit um, and start to raise interest rates back into some semblance of a normal inflation targeting range, um, even if they do that, um, then you're still going to see um, dividends in Australian companies. Um, and we just look at look at what BlueScope um, has recently done in, uh, in Australia, uh, dividends, special dividend on top, leverage to the US property market, not to China. Um, you know, there are going to be robust quality names in Australia that even if um, they do start to raise interest rates next year, um, then we still think that equity markets are a far more uh, sensible medium to long-term play for investors um, than in almost any other asset class. You've been away for a long time, but what's your favourite local company going forward? Um, we like BlueScope. Um, as I just referenced, um, I, I can dig into that a little bit deeper for you if you want. Um, we also like... I'll bring you back in a couple of weeks' time we'll talk about it. But I just wanted to, you know, for the people who have been listening to the higher end of your argument, they're probably interested yep. to know whether uh, they're happy to know your, your pro stocks 2022 and you do have a local liking in BlueScope. But have I guess yep. you back next week and we'll look at some of the companies you like. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I can... Uh, I'll give you a top three or a top five, Peter. How does that sound? I haven't had you for a long time, so let's go for top five next, next yep. week. Next week. Yep, cool. Well, Marcel, thanks for joining us. Sacre bleu, Peter. <laughs> Take care. All the best. Cheers, mate. And that was Marcel von Pfeiffer of Arminius Capital. And don't forget our small and microcap conference, the online conference is on tomorrow. If you want to attend, just click on the link in the description below. Thanks for joining us. See you on Thursday.